0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svaram Chatter podcast. For this edition, I'm going to be joined by Professor Steven Nadler, who is the William H. Hay II Professor of Philosophy and the F. U. Bascom Professor in Humanities at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And we're going to be discussing um, Ra- Rabbi Menachem Ben Israel, or Menachem Ben Israel, who is, uh, he wrote a book. Professor Nadler wrote a book with, in the Jewish Live series with Yale University Press. So thank you very much, Professor Nadler, for joining me.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Because okay, so why don't we get right into it? So, who was, I guess, this figure, Menashe ben Israel? Menasseh ben Israel.
1: He was the most famous Jew in Europe in the 17th century. Uh, in fact, that was going to be the subtitle of the book and the, the publisher next to that. Um, so, he was born in Lisbon, Portugal, in 1604. Uh, but, like so many families, uh, they fled Portugal under pressure from the Inquisition, which never really trusted that these Uh, families who had ostensibly converted to Catholicism uh, really were sincere believing Christians. Um, And they ended up in Amsterdam where Manasseh trained with uh, one of the rabbis in the community, one of the three congregations at the time. Uh, And he grew up to be uh, one of the four rabbis of the Talmud Torah community, which was a community of uh, Portuguese Jews in Amsterdam living openly as Jews.
0: Now, so I guess we should maybe take a step back. Do you want to give a broad like a basic quick overview of the Amsterdam Jewish community at that time?
1: Sure. Um, Before 1600, there were technically no Jews in Amsterdam or Antwerp or in any of the domains of the Spanish Habsburg Empire. Uh, But there were people who were called Portuguese merchants. Uh, And many of these Portuguese merchants were indeed uh, sincere Christians. Um, Probably um, most of them were conversos, that is, either people who had been forced to convert to Christianity or descendants of families that had been forced to convert to Christianity. Um, And these Spanish and Portuguese Jews often ended up uh, in Antwerp, um, both because it was a little further away from the prying minds of the Inquisition, and because if you're a merchant, that was the place to be. Um, to control these, the, I mean, Antwerp was the uh, mercantile capital of Europe at the time. Uh, but eventually, um, Antwerp and Flanders generally became a less tolerant place, especially once the Dutch revolt took place and the seven northern provinces um, broke away from Spain and eventually won their independence as the Dutch Republic. So a lot of these Portuguese merchants in Antwerp uh, went to Amsterdam. Um, along with people fleeing from Spain and Portugal who themselves went directly to Amsterdam. Um, and by 1600 or shortly thereafter, we know that these people were practicing openly as Jews. Um, and the city cast a pretty tolerant eye on them. The city, uh, the Dutch generally were much more worried about Catholics than they were about Jews because Catholics uh, would have been possibly a you know, fifth column Uh, favoring Spain, but also there was a suspicion that if you're Catholic, your primary loyalty is to the Pope. Um, But Jews, they were willing to leave alone as long as things were kept quiet. And they also, uh, the Dutch being the Dutch at the time, um, they recognized that there were great economic benefits to allowing these merchants to settle in Amsterdam and bring their wealth and networks and connections to the city. And so by the, time Spino- uh, by the time Manasseh was born, I almost said Spinoza, uh, by the time Manasseh was born, um, there were uh, two congregations uh, in um, Amsterdam. We're not quite sure when the second congregation was formed. Um, he belongs to the, the Beth Yaakov, uh congregation. Um, by 1639, there were three congregations and in that year they united into a single congregation called Talmud Torah. And they continued uh, thinking of themselves as members of the Portuguese nation. Um, but they were essentially, uh, it was a, a very uh, well-off, um, well-organized Jewish community.
0: I think it may be important also to explain a little bit um, about how, what did it mean uh, a congregation to people? Maybe they think like it means like not like uh, just a shul, you know, like you have now. It meant something different with the I'd Maybe explain what, what was the structure there. I think it'll be, you know, uh important to know when we talk further about his life
1: so each congregation had its chief rabbi um, and it also had several other organ uh, institutions within it Um, and they held services because of dutch law they couldn't build a synagogue but they held services in someone's home and often it was the mansion of one of the wealthier members of the community Uh, but there were also inter-congregational foundations so uh, the Charity uh, Foundation covered all three con- congregations. By 1618, there was a third congregation. Um, the congregations, that is these groups, um, were, as far as we know, there were not great differences in their um, observances, and, you know, the way in which they read Torah and the way in which they organized themselves. There were mi- probably minor differences. And maybe one congregation was perhaps more uh, Kabbalistically inclined than another. But they got along well enough. There were disputes. And the, the emergence of the third congregation was based on some dispute within um, one of the congregations. But they got along well enough so that they could manage uh, inter-congregational affairs pretty well. And they got along well enough so that they could actually merge. But it wasn't without tension. You know, That's the synagogue I to go to, and that's the other synagogue I won't step foot in.
0: Right, exactly. And, and and they also had um, yeshivas, yeshivot, right, at that point as well? Also? Uh, probably
1: not that early, um, but yeah, not soon thereafter. Um, we know that there were certainly yeshivot in this by the 1630s and probably earlier. Um, but, you know, a lot of the history is, is buried. Um, we, ha- we have the record books. Uh, we have notary documents. We have congregational documents going back. Um, I should say that one of the important sources of information on these congregations is the, uh, the record of the cemetery, which uh, was in Kirk, um which is about 10 kilometers outside of Amsterdam. And the record book of the uh, Ouderkerk cemetery uh, is a very important source for the records. We also have the volumes of the Askamot, or the, um, the basically the record books for the Ma- Mot, the Mad who, uh, these, co- these congregations were really governed by the lay leaders. The rabbis were s- not secondary figures, but real power in each congregation was among the Parnassim, which is what they called the members of the Mamad. And there was, there was tension there. The, you know, the rabbis chafed under the authority of these lay leaders, especially because um, a lot of these, and this goes back to your original question, a lot of these families had been cut off from normative Jewish practices and texts for so long that they really had to learn how to become Jews they had to learn ritual uh, and what they did was they imported rabbis from Venice, uh, Salonika, and elsewhere to reintegrate them into Judaism. but there remained within each you know within the lay the lay members um, traces of their Catholic upbringing so for example uh, the uh Purim was called the Feast of Saint Esther, um, and so the rabbis had a pretty tough time trying to enforce uh, Jewish orthodoxy, small O orthodoxy, um, and this this was a source of tension between the the lay members and the rabbinate.
0: And one more thing before we get into more into Menashe. At that point, were there Ashkenazim there or was only Sephardim, only Portuguese, really?
1: There were individual Ashkenazim and for the time they worshipped um, with the Sephardim. By the 1630s, there were German Jews um, and um, they had organized themselves at that point. By the 1640s, they were joined by Jews from Poland and Lithuania. Uh, And so at that point, I believe it's in the late 1640s, um, that they had their own um, synagogue, but they even earlier than that, there was a German congregation.
0: So in Menashe's time, there were Ashkenazim there in, yes. in, in, in Okay, so so first of all, just on his name, it's Menashe ben Israel. Menashe ben Israel. So first of all, because why did he have the name Ben Israel? Yeah, people at that time still had last names. He ended up with like the name Ben Israel. Like where, where where is that? Just that was just well, like
1: yeah. The, the, the original name was was um, Manuel Suaro Dias, um, the Portuguese his Portuguese name. Uh, and when the family landed in Amsterdam and returned to Judaism, the, uh, the father decided we're going to be uh, Ben Israel. Uh, and so he took the name uh, Joseph Ben Israel uh, and his sons were Manasseh and Ephraim.
0: Right. And it was just,
1: uh, you know, a lot of these uh, Converso families, former Converso families in Amsterdam um, operated with uh, three names. Uh, they had their original Portuguese names. Uh, they took Hebrew names and then they used Dutch aliases uh, for doing business in areas where Jews um, would not have been welcome.
0: Interesting. So what was his background, his upbringing? Where did he, he, who did he study under? What was his
1: you know, youth? So his first rabbi, um, we really don't know much, um, but we do know that his first uh, teacher and a very strong influence in him was uh, Rabbi Isaac Uziel, who was from Fez, uh, Morocco. And uh, he was the, uh, the chief rabbi of the Beth Jacob congregation. Uh, and he, as far as we know, um, he was the formative um, influence um, theologically, uh, spiritually upon Manasseh. He was a very stern teacher, but he was highly regarded by his students. And then uh, he passed away um, and by 1622, Manasseh, who was only 18 at the time, uh, took over his duties uh, for that congregation.
0: Now, right now that now, so you said that this, I think, gets into the communities had merged. So there was a bunch well, of... They good... hadn't merged yet. Oh, they didn't merge. Yet. Okay. So I have my dates. So when, when did they... Not 1639. Merge? Okay. So at that point, what was his... I know he had, there was some tension with the other rabbis in Amsterdam, right? Between him and the other ones. Was that just the ongoing thing that always happened, continued?
1: Well, that was later on. You know, one of the other students of Rabbi Uziel was Isaac Abu Abdel Fonseca. Um, and so, and he and Manasseh were, were close in age, and so they must have studied together. Um, and then later on, um, you know, after, six, after the merger of the three congregations, um, they, there were four now rabbis. Once it became the Talmud Torah congregation, there were four rabbis. The chief rabbi was Saul Levi Mortera, uh, he was an Ashkenazic Jew, but he was uh, from Venice, uh, belonged to an Ashkenazic family. He ended up in Amsterdam. He became the chief rabbi. Uh, the second uh, rabbi was uh, Isaac Abu Abdel Fonseca. Uh, the third rabbi was Manasseh bin Israel, and the fourth rabbi was David Pardo. Uh, the thing, though, that really rankled Manasseh was that um, he was paid less even than the fourth rabbi, even though he was technically third in rank, he had fewer, uh, fewer preaching duties than Abu Ab, and certainly fewer than Mortera, who was the chief rabbi. And um, this really rankled him. Um, he felt underappreciated, and I think he was underappreciated and disrespected. And so the, the, he didn't sit well uh, in the rabbinate there.
0: And do we see this in his writings? Where do you, where do we, does he like allude to this?
1: We see it in the, the community records mainly. Um, so let's just take Abu Ab. um, At one point when Manasseh, who was also a printer, in order to supplement his salary as a rabbi, he started a printing press and became the most important Jewish publisher in Europe uh, and really operated the first um, Hebrew printing press in Amsterdam. Um, and so as a printer, he um, he made quite a, quite a good living, never enough to satisfy him. He was always in financial need, but it was good enough to supplement his salary. Um, but he was also an unorthodox printer. He was printing works in Hebrew, but also uh, in Yiddish, in Latin, in French in Dutch, and even in English. Um, and on one occasion, he had asked permission to publish uh, the Safer Alim by uh, Simon, Solomon Dometigo. Um, And he was denied permission um, they were suspicious that this was going to be a heretical work. Um, and so what he did was he went to another community uh, outside Holland and got their permission. Uh, and this, you know, this really pissed off the rabbis. But I think what what annoyed him was that Abu Ab was, uh, Rabbi Abuab was on the committee that had denied him permission. And so that, you know, that got things going from there. And uh, then the, I think... Manasseh was sufficiently unhappy in Amsterdam that when the Dutch took over parts of Brazil uh, and a Jewish community emerged there, uh, Manasseh applied to be their rabbi. Uh, but so did Abuab. Uh, and guess who got the job? <laughs> so Abu Ab gets—he goes off to Brazil, and so Manasseh's—you uh, know—as if he wasn't resentful enough, and now he's, now he's even more unhappy. But on the other hand, Abuab's out of the city. He's, he's out of Amsterdam. Uh, on the other hand, um, then there's uh, Rabbi Mortera. And uh, at a certain point, we see these records in the community's books that um, indicate that Mortera and Manasseh are sniping at each other in their sermons. Um, they don't tell us what exactly the issue is, but it has—it's clear it has to do with how they interpret uh, Torah or Tanakh. Um, Mordecai was more of a literalist, uh, and Manasseh uh, was a proponent of uh, analogical or metaphorical readings of texts when under certain circumstances. So these two rabbis are are sniping at each other in their sermons, and we have records of the of the um, Parnassim saying, "Guys, cut it out! Um, stop!" But it doesn't stop. And at a certain point, um, Manasseh and Mortera are told if you don't cut it out, you're going to each receive, receive a harem um, and you're going to be relieved of your rabbinic duties. And it, it's, it, it just keeps that, that tension between Mortera and Manasseh just continues right up to the years before Manasseh leaves for England. Then there's another incident, which we also have a record of in the, um, the book of Askamot. Um, so there was um, there were some posters that were appearing in the Portuguese Jewish neighborhood, which was also by by chance uh, Rembrandt's neighborhood. It was it was both the Jewish quarter but also the art quarter of the city. Um, so there were some posters going around the neighborhood, um, impugning the uh, integrity and business practices of some members of the community, saying that they were seeking through unfair means to monopolize uh, the Brazil trade. And Manasseh's brother-in-law, Jonah Abrabanel, was accused of being one of the people behind these posters. Now the posters were a violation of the community's rules because here you are publicly shaming um, fellow members of the community. And so Jonah Abrabanel is called before the congregation and asked to answer for his um, actions. And Manasseh did not like the way Abrabanel was being treated. He thought he was being, wasn't being shown sufficient respect. And the fact that he was called up before the board, but not referred to as senhor, you know, sir. Um, And so Manasseh starts making a fuss in the synagogue about how his brother-in-law is being treated. And the Parnassim said, uh, essentially, you better shut up, (laughs) sit down, be quiet. And he didn't. He got angrier. He followed them out of the synagogue continuing to berate them. And they said, if you don't stop, we're going to put you under harem. He said, you're going to put me under harem. I'll put you under harem. Um, so they put him under harem for a day um, and he had to pay a fine. And so, you know, it just, it just all adds up.
0: Yeah, it was really colorful uh, community. All this is articulated in your book, which is great. I mean, um, so a couple of things I want to point out. So, yeah, you you mentioned before about printing, say, for Elim, but Yasher Mikandia, as he was known as uh, Um The other part is I think we forgot, uh, I don't know if you forgot, maybe we'll get to, uh, Rafa R- 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 he Fonseca, not only he went to uh, Brazil and then and, uh, he came back. He, right. he had, oh, that's right, I forgot. We <laughs> got to get to the part where he
1: came back. <laughs> he came back. And, you, you know, you could see Manassa saying, oh, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> and that was because the,
0: right, the Spanish, who, who uh, they conquered, received where he was. They, it it fell back under the Inquisition, right? It was the Portuguese.
1: Yeah, right. They reconquered, and so the Dutch had to get out of there. And the Jews had to get out of there really quickly. Um, a lot of them went back to Amsterdam, which caused a bit of a refugee problem. Um, but a fair number, um, as your listeners probably know, uh, went to New Amsterdam um, and started a congregation there. And they also went to, um, to the Dutch Islands in the Caribbean, uh, include you know saint martin and uh, curacao and you know you can still see the synagogue on curacao which is modeled after the amsterdam synagogue but yes abuab went back and not only did he come back he resumed his place as second rabbi and got a higher salary than Manasseh did
0: yeah yeah that was uh yeah definitely and like you mentioned they came to new amsterdam so i mean you know i, I mentioned one of the other podcasts i haven't done any on like, in America, really, but it uh, was Sfardim? there really was New York and Philadelphia was a lot of, a lot of these, uh, these uh, Portuguese, uh, former Portuguese. So, yeah, obviously, his relationship with Manasseh was, was tense. But um, so we mentioned his, his, his printing press. So at that point, Amsterdam became like from the most famous printing presses in, in the uh, Jewish world. Um, he also printed his own farm, right? You want to talk about some of his own books that he that he published at that time?
1: Yeah. Um, so he there's a, there's about a, a dozen to fifteen works by Manasseh that he published, um, and they kind of range across uh, various genres. Um, the first thing, um, uh, well, there's a, there is a manuscript. He wrote a Hebrew grammar, but never published it. Uh, that that manuscript exists in the Etz Chaim Library, in the um, Portuguese Synagogue in Amsterdam. Uh, he wrote um, philosophical treatises. Um, a, Essentially, a book on on free will. Um, he wrote a book on uh, on resurrection, um, and and then the Nishma Chaim. The uh, so these are two treatises essentially about the resurrection of the dead and the immortality of the soul. Uh, there's a, his most famous work in the period was the uh, the Conciliador, the Conciliator, which is a a, a large vi, a large four volume work in which Manasseh tries to reconcile all the apparent inconsistencies in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and it, it's, it's fascinating reading, a, a little tedious at times, but it's not strictly a work of literary criticism because he uses philosophical and theological principles sometimes. So if you want to get an idea of what Manasseh thought about this or that uh, theological or religious topic, uh, you might look at how he tries to reconcile this or that passage uh, in the Bible, um, there is um, there are treatises in which he expresses his messianic principles the uh, the Hope of Israel, um, which is a treatise he composed after the the alleged discovery of Jews in the new world, and he saw this of messianic import uh, there 's the Piedra Gloriosa, the glorious stone in which Manasseh offers his interpretation of the book of Daniel and its messianic um, implications. So, uh, you know, across the board, philosophical writings, theological writings, religious writings. He also wrote a um, a book of customs for for Jews, essentially for people reintegrating to Judaism, a sort of handbook on how to be a good Jew, including tips for the good Jewish housewife, you know, how how to keep your food separate and so on.
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting about him also is that he wrote in a variety of languages, right? He wasn't just restricted to Hebrew or he wrote in a bunch of different languages, all these books, correct?
1: In fact, he only wrote one book in Hebrew, the Nishmar Chaim. Um, Everything else he wrote in Spanish or Portuguese, mostly Spanish. Um, And they do appear in Latin editions in his lifetime. We're not sure, though, whether he translated themselves. I think he had somebody translate them for them, probably one of his Dutch friends, because we're told from some other correspondence. you know, that we don't have a lot of documentary material from Manasseh himself, aside from the books he published, but we have a handful of letters and things. And in, in one of the correspondents, not, not from him, but uh, among some of his acquaintances, we're told that his Latin was not very good. So I suspect that the Latin was translated by one of his Dutch friends.
0: Right, So right. And Nishmus Chaim is, I guess, what we would, you know, would be most familiar, what people would be most familiar with him today in the uh, from world, I guess, because that's what uh, he wrote in Hebrew. So people, you know, if they don't see, there is a new edition. It's not very good. It's just, you know, new print, but it is around. Um, yeah, you mentioned The Consilitator, that, that book, um, the, the conciliator um, that there is that I had showed you before there's an English edition that was published a number you know I don't know I don't know when it was published exactly but it's hard to come across but that is if people want to somehow track it down there is an English edition of that um, I, I also it was printing press I think it was him and his son right and he also had a famous employee I believe uh, who was famous for fighting the uh, Shepsi did, did work there
1: right uh, he might, yeah. Um, I don't you think we know that. for certain, but so Susportis was in and out of Amsterdam, um, and at one point he may have been there um, working either perhaps as a corrector or a compositor. Right. Um, there's yeah. a very good biography of Susportis that was published last year by um, Jacob Dweck. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think
0: he does say that in there. I don't remember. I read uh, his book, so I, I, I seem to recall that. So obviously um something in another you know one other language that he wrote on and i guess we should get into this now is this is, is thing i guess he's most famous for i mean he's famous for a lot of things most famous for is like you said mikvah israel, israel and and the uh the new jews in the new world and he wrote in english he, he met he went to england he met with oliver cromwell so what happened what, who did he meet that inspired him on this path and the, the whole
1: story so he claims he was invited by cromwell to come and advocate for the readmission of the Jews. Um, And that that seems to be true. Uh, And Cromwell favored readmission of the Jews, not least probably for economic reasons. Uh, But remember that the uh, English and the Dutch were were really vicious competitors in this period. There were two wars um, in the 17th century, three wars in the 17th century between the English and the Dutch Um, and perhaps Uh, Cromwell looked at this vibrant Jewish community in Amsterdam and said, well, I want one of those. Uh, And he he may have invited uh, Manasseh to come um, and help um, make possible. So the Jews have been expelled from England since 1290 under King Edward. Um, And so technically, officially, there were no Jews in England. But we know that there were Portuguese merchants in London and we know that these were Jews. Uh, and the fact there was probably uh, a private home in which the Portuguese Jews in London were holding services um, but another possible motive from Manasseh's departure was again that he wanted to get out of Amsterdam <laughs> you know he, he was ch- as you said uh, Abu Ab was back in town he was chafing um, he, he was still sniping with Mortera uh, and so London if he could go to London and become the rabbi there that would be a really nice opportunity Uh, So he goes over to London, um, and uh, this is in uh, November of 1655, and the the discussions begin. uh, The the Parliament and at the Whitehall Conference, the the question is taken up, um, should the Jews officially be allowed to be readmitted to England? Um, And there's a great pamphlet war. There's a lot of voices for, there's a lot of voices against. In the end, nothing comes of it. Sort of Manasseh's great disappointment, and I even think that the that small Jewish community that was in London resented Manasseh for even stirring up the pot. You know, things are just fine. Why call this attention to ourselves? Um, and so it ends inconclusively. And in fact, you know, I don't think England ever formally issued a writ of readmission. It just it just happened. Um, it, did Manasseh help it? Did he hinder it? Who knows? Um, but it was the great project in the final years of his life, and it must have been extremely disappointing to him not to have succeeded. Uh, to make things worse, uh, his son Samuel, who had gone over with him, died in London. Um, and so Manasseh brought Samuel's body back to the Netherlands, um, and uh, they arrived in Middleburg, which is uh, in the northern part of the Netherlands, and um, Manasseh died there before even making it back to Amsterdam. So it's a very kind of a sad ending to what I think it was a great 17th century Jewish life.
0: Right. And I think even uh, you can find it online. He has the to his high ho- highness and the Lord Protector of the Commonwealth, right? That's he did. He write that in English?
1: Do we know? He did. Yeah, that's his plea. He yeah, he wrote that in English. Uh that was his plea um for readmission.
0: Right. So people can 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 still find that. Um I guess we would also so, and McPherson. I think I think was it? It was tra- it is translated into Hebrew, right?
1: Um, that's so. a good question. I'm not sure. It was not translated into Hebrew in his lifetime, right? Um, but yeah, there might very well be a, a Hebrew translation. Now, it was translated into English um, early on. And, right. Uh, Manasseh was very popular among English millenarians. Uh, that is, uh, Catholic, uh, Christians who um, had their own messianic expectations and believed that, the, the, for them, the second coming of the Messiah uh, required um, the conversion of the Jews, and that that couldn't happen until the Jews were present in all the lands of the globe. Uh, and so they, too, wanted the Jews readmitted to England because this would be an important step towards uh, bringing the Messiah. And so uh, Manasseh was very popular among these English millenarians. Uh, and so they, they read his works uh, and had the Hope of Israel, uh, the Mikveh Yisrael, uh, translated.
0: Right. I believe I'm looking here on, on HebrewBooks.org, has a couple of stuff. I, I believe the, there is a Hebrew translation of it. So if people want to see all his works, there's a, a bunch of Hebrew uh, works over there. So I guess we would also be remiss if we didn't get back to uh, him, that he uh, had a famous or infamous student as well. Uh, who, I don't know if he was, uh, he wanted to talk a drop, right? When, and also, did he have any other students that we know of?
1: So Spinoza is often, you talk about Spinoza, right? Yeah, correct. <laughs> uh, Spinoza is often called Manasseh's student, um, and sometimes that claim is made even stronger that uh, Manasseh was a great influence on Spinoza, gave him his intellectual outlook and bears a good deal of responsibility for Spinoza's radical views. Um, I, I think that's, that's all Boba um, Mises, that if Manasseh was Spinoza's teacher, it would only have been when Manasseh was teaching in the elementary level of the Talmud Torah school. And so, yeah, sure, he, he taught him Hebrew and Torah lessons. Uh, I don't think Manasseh was a great intellectual influence on Spinoza. And in fact, when you start comparing their views, you know, think of uh, Manasseh's Messianism, this this notion that there will be a fifth kingdom, Um, the Messiah will come and wipe away all the other kingdoms of the world. Um, Manasseh's strong defense on the resurrection of the dead and the immortality of the soul. Um, These are doctrines that Spinoza explicitly argues against. He sees them as superstitious and harmful beliefs. Then again, Manasseh's um, project to reconcile all the passages of the bible. Spinoza's own view of the bible is that it's a patchwork piece of literature composed by many authors over many generations and it's crazy to think that you can reconcile all these different works into a single coherent piece. So I think the two men are very far apart uh, spiritually and intellectually.
0: Right. And, and was, was Manasseh actually involved in the harem that they put on, on Spinoza? He wasn't there at that time.
1: He was not there. Um, I'd be really curious. He must have heard about it because of communications between Amsterdam and London. Unfortunately, we don't know what exactly he thought of it. I would love to find some letter or something where Manassas, uh, has expresses some viewpoint about the harem uh, the or the banning of Spinoza from the Portuguese congregation.
0: Right. Now, did he have any known like famous students? Not really.
1: Who, Manasseh? Yeah, Manasseh, yeah. No, not really, Um, because he was not given high responsibilities in the school. When Abu Ab left, he was allowed to teach for a little while the upper levels, where Talmud um, and Midrash were taught. But as far as I know, uh, well, once Abu Ab came back, he was sent back down to the elementary levels, if he continued teaching at all. so I, you know, I, I I can't really think of any great influences he had either as a teacher, um, and in the Jewish world, I can't really think of any great influence he had as a writer. He had great influence in the Gentile world, and that's why earlier I said he was the most famous Jew of Europe. He was in the minds of European Gentiles in the time. He was the go-to man for all things Jewish. If you had a question about the Jewish view on, on the Sanhedrin and how Jewish law and judgment worked, if you had questions about the Jewish view on free will, if you had questions about the Jewish view on immortality, you go to Manasseh. But that, those were the Gentiles. Uh, he, was, he was the Jewish spokesman and apologist for Judaism. This, too, I think, though, annoyed the Amsterdam Parnassim, the leaders of the Amsterdam community, that Manasseh was a little too cozy with the Christian side of things right um,
0: mm-hmm. so with it, what um, what was his I, I think going back to what was his relationship with the various, I mean, you said he was been Gentiles, but was he like really in connection? Who was he like very much in connection with at that
1: time? He was in connection. So if we just start in Amsterdam, um, uh, uh, Peter Serarius, who uh, was a, um, a millenarian, um, you know, a, basically a Christian messianist. Uh, Paul Felgenhauer, who was a conversionist millenarian seeking the conversion of the Jews. He was also in Amsterdam. He had friends in the Quaker world in Amsterdam. Um, then you had the English millenarians, Henry Jesse, uh, Thomas Thurgood, and so on. Uh, so, and, and he had correspondence in, in France, uh, in the German lands, it wasn't Germany yet, of course, it was the Holy Roman Empire, but correspondence there. He was also, he also had connections uh, further east. He was known to have attended the Frankfurt Book Fair at least once. So he, he was a very cosmopolitan man. And the correspondence that we do have, as well as records um, of correspondence generally, show us that he was in touch, not just with uh, theologians and religious figures, but intellectuals. Um, for example, uh, Sherardus Vosius, who was a leading humanist scholar in the Netherlands, was a very good friend of Manasseh's. And Manasseh taught Hebrew to Vosius's son, um, Isaac. So,
0: right, very interesting. He definitely, yeah, and all this is uh, covered in the book, obviously. So I think, you know, what's interesting is you kind of touched on it, like his legacy today, especially, like, is, is, is interesting, right? I mean, people know of Nishmas Chaim. It's been quoted, but, like, especially in the former, like, people don't, he's not really that well known. Is that because he didn't write in Hebrew? Like, do you have any, like, thought on that, or? Uh,
1: that's a good question. I, I don't know how well known he is, um, even in the more Orthodox Jewish world. Um, Perhaps they know his name, but I doubt anybody has really read anything by him, um, because a lot of it hasn't been translated. Um, so the Mikveh Yisrael was translated, um, the uh, Conciliador was translated, um, the the book on the on human fragility and where he talks about free will and sin that was translated into French, but not into English. Um, then you know, there are a few things he did write in English. But if you don't read Spanish or Latin, um, it's going to be hard to access most of his works. Right, right. Uh, so,
0: yeah, but like I said, Nishmaschai people can get a hold of if they're interested. Yeah. So, as far,
1: but as we said, it's not an easy read.
0: No, no, exactly. Right, and and the lat- and the also there's no, the, the edition now is a new print. It's got Nakudas even, but there's no, you know there's no peerish on there's nothing to help you, uh, if you don't understand these things. So, I, I heard somebody's right. working on it. I don't know,
1: maybe that's true. There's a, there's a lot of context there that if you don't have it, right? You know, most of his works are polemical, that, that is, there are responses to uh, challenges, contemporary challenges in his time. So, the, the book on uh, human fragility, on free will, he wrote that he was originally simply supposed to provide. Another one of his Christian friends who was putting together a book, Felgenhauer, was putting together a book on various religious views of freedom of the will. And so he said, well, tell me, Manasseh, what is the Jewish view? But rather than give a snippet to Felgenhauer, he decides to write this book um, in which he lays out, um, in a way, it must have been very disappointing to Felgenhauer because um, Manasseh is saying, well, according to Judaism, there is such a thing as free will, and people are responsible for their fate. Um, on th- at the same time, though, everyone will sin, no matter how virtuous you are. You will sin, but it's not that you're fated to sin or determined to sin. I mean, So for, for Manasseh to publish a book, Defending Freedom of the Will, in the Dutch Republic, which is a Calvinist nation, and the Calvinists." Believed very strongly in predestination. This is a, a very bold move, and that probably too did not um, please the leaders of the community.
0: Right. Okay. So the last thing I want to ask you about is I think you have it as like an appendix, but is is um, there's a famous or you know picture that's attributed to Rembrandt that, that he did that he of Menasha because they were friends. So. Is that where, the, with the big wide-brimmed hat, is that where that is from? Were they really friends? And on the front cover of the book, you use that you have a different picture. Where's that picture right. from?
1: Well, that, that Rembrandt etching is not of Rembrandt. Uh, sorry, it's not of Manasseh. It is by Rembrandt, but it's not of Manasseh. Even though it's long been taken by Manasseh, the only reason people think it's Manasseh is because an 18th-century French cataloger identified it as um, a picture of a rabbi, and it was assumed that this was Manasseh. Um, the picture on the cover of the book is Manasseh, because um, we know that that uh, engraving was made by uh, Salom Italia, who was an artist in the Amsterdam community. Uh, And he's, you know, the the text on the engraving says this is Manasseh ben Israel. So that's Manasseh. Um, The relationship or alleged relationship with Rembrandt is one of the great mysteries here, because there are several episodes um, that suggests there was some kind of connection between the two. So, the, for example, there's Rembrandt's painting of Belshazzar's feast, and the Aramaic in the painting very closely resembles um, uh, the Aramaic, the solution to the same problem, about how was, how was the writing on the wall in the Daniel story about Belshazzar's, Belshazzar's feast. Um, why couldn't the uh, Belshazzar's wise men make out the text? Well, because it was written in a certain way, and uh, the rabbis, of the Talmud have different solutions, Manasseh has his solution, and it's exactly the same thing we see in Rembrandt's painting. So that suggests that, and that, I think that's pretty good evidence that Rembrandt consulted with Manasseh on that painting. Um, then there's Manasseh's book, Piedra Gloriosa, um, The Glorious Stone, and th- there are um, seven copies of that book, still extant, which have four etched prints by Rembrandt, illustrating four of the episodes from Manasseh's narrative. Um, And so at some point, somebody commissioned Rembrandt to create etchings to go along with this book. Was it Manasseh? Well, unfortunately, we don't have any documentary evidence saying that Manasseh said, hey, I've got this book. Would you please help me illustrate it? Um, I, I don't think actually it was Manasseh. I have my own theory that it was, it was Valsius, um, Manasseh's friend Valsius, to whom he dedicated the work, who had connections with Rembrandt and then asked Rembrandt to create these prints for his own personal copies. So that, that remains one of the enduring mysteries, both of Rembrandt's career and Manasseh's life.
0: Right, as, as you read in the appendix. So definitely everyone should check out the book. It's a really enjoyable, really interesting uh, uh, read. We have to, much more in-depth than what we discussed. But uh, thank you very much for uh, joining me to discuss this. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks so much. It's my pleasure.